Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and today I'm joined by my friend Arielle Astoria to talk about self-repression in the context of her upcoming book, The Unfolding. We talk about the ways that self-repression starts way before we learn purity culture, but really finds its stride in it. I want to say thank you so much to everyone who listens. You already are supporting the podcast in doing so. So thank you so much for sharing it with your friends, for subscribing, rating, reviewing. For those of you that are on Patreon with us, for supporting us on Patreon. We will have more updates for you coming up soon. But y'all, I'm just so grateful to get to do this. And so as we continue in this series on purity culture that kind of feels like it's never ending, I hope that it's meeting you in ways that are helpful. If you have suggestions for guests or questions for us, feel free to shoot us an email or a message at reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. And with all of that, and my very fast talking, know that I swear a fair amount, as I always do, in this episode with Ariel Astoria. Alrighty. Well, here we go. Well, first, I want to say congratulations on your book almost being out in the world. You're, what, a few days out almost. now. It's pretty amazing. Yes. So congratulations. Yes. Thank you. It feels... It feels very fun. I like feel like from, from now until it's out on Tuesday, I just feel like it's like this giddy pre-Christmassy kind of vibe. So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited. That's such a great feeling. And I'm so glad that it's going that way for you. Well, yeah. today we're going to talk um, about a bunch of different things related to purity culture, one thing in particular. But for folks who don't know you, I would love for them to get to know you. You've done this before, but I would love mm-hmm. for you to describe for folks, what does it mean to be you in this season? Ah, I love this. Um, so what does it mean to be me in this season? It means to um, be a, a author and poet specifically. I'm really trying to like hone in onto those parts of myself while also um, expanding into the other aspects of what it means to be an artist, a creative. I do a lot of different things. <laughs> so um, I, I feel like I'm in a space where I feel like I'm coming like to this really full circle aspect of being a poet. I think having a book, you know, exist and out in the world feels like such an accomplishment and something I've been working towards a whole lot. So I'm really excited to continue to build off of that. Um, yeah, I, I am a person who is filled usually with uh, a lot of joy and a lot of excitement about the future with just very hint of doses of Enneagram for uh, deficit and damnation. Um, and um, yeah, I, I just am leaning into this like really grounded space. I was telling my therapist yesterday, I was like, I feel very sure of where I'm at. And I haven't mm-hmm. felt that in a little bit of time. And so I'm really leaning into that, that groundedness and who I am and where I am. I'm feeling that um, pretty deeply lately. So yeah, that's who I am. My name's Ariel. There it okay. is. <laughs> I love that so much, especially because in a lot of our, I think, mutual faith experiences, certainty is this thing that you're like, it's not about certainty, it's about faith. And therefore, you never get to know yourself and can become sure mm-hmm. of yourself in any way. So I love yeah. that picture of you coming into a place of sureness about yourself and that not yeah. being some kind of weird heretical reality that you said it or something. Yeah. It's just, it, gets, it gets really strange. And so I love that that's a part of your it life does. right now. Yeah, I, it, it makes me think of um, my... Um, my dad used used to say, you know, God is God is not a God of uh, confusion, and I've been like really sitting with what that looks like and what that looks means to me now, and and by saying God is not a God of confusion means that I'm in a space of like, I know myself, which means I feel really connected to where I feel God has called me to be today, you know, and what Mm. that looks like for me now. And before it used to mean, you know, like, you can't doubt, you can't question. And I'm like, actually, I think that means something totally different now. So that's kind of how I've interpreted that, um, that phrase and that saying in this, in this setting, in this, I guess that I sit in. Yeah. And that feels like it's going to fit so well with what we're talking about today as we talk about self-suppression or repression, Mm -hmm. not just in purity culture, but outside of it, because I think understanding Mm -hmm. repression more broadly will help us in the purity culture conversation, but certainly isn't limited to it. But before we get into that conversation, I would love if you could tell me a little bit about your history with purity culture. Where has purity Mm -hmm. culture and all that nonsense intersected with your life and your work, if it has at all? Oh, yes, significantly. Um, so uh, I I grew up, I'm a, a Baptist pastor's daughter. Um, and so Pewdie Culture was just 
all up in that all the time, you know, from from the lock-ins, which are, if, if people don't know what that is, God bless your soul, um, but from the lock-ins, which are these, these like, weird youth group sleepovers um, that we would have at churches, and, and the girls would be, you know, um, female-identifying people are in one room, and all the male-identifying people are in another room, and uh, we can't, there's no crossing over once it was lights out, it was keep, keep the doors closed. Um, for me, it was growing up in a house full of women and our friends who were guys were not allowed to come upstairs. Um, it looked like wearing a purity ring for most of my life. Like, I kid you not, up until about uh, 20, 23, 24, 25, <laughs> 25, 26. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm like, ooh, when did I take it off? Um, and even my reasoning for taking it off is really funny because it wasn't like, I'm trying to be a hoe. Um, I didn't take it off because of that. But like, I took it off because I was like, I don't want, this is so fun to think I, about. No, I totally like to say. <laughs> I was like, I don't want my trust to be in a ring. I want my trust to like actually be in God. And I think I meant that genuinely, but I also just like didn't low key want the reminder that like nobody had kissed me. So I took my purity very to an extreme. Um, I didn't have my first kiss until I was 27 because I thought, you know, the slippery slopes we keep hearing about. So I thought for myself, knowing that I'm a feeler, knowing that I'm an empath, now just realizing I was. I was and am a very sexual person, which are things I'm just now being okay with saying about myself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I only have the safety to do that because I'm married. But before I was like, no, I've always been this way. I just suppressed a lot of it. So for me, it was like, well, I'm not even going to kiss anyone. I also love human beings and I, and I tend to take everyone in really wholeheartedly. So I'm like, I'm going to fall in love with this person. So I'm not about to just kiss whoever. And I really meant that. And so I, I took that very seriously. I didn't have my first kiss till I was 27. I initially told myself that I wasn't going to give my first kiss to anyone except my husband. And when I didn't do that, I wasn't married to this person that I kissed, but it was someone I'd known for years. Mm -hmm. He was like a crush that I grew up with. And like, we always liked each other at random times. And he was like my best friend at the time. It was her brother. And so, you know, that's always a juicy story. Um, and I remember afterwards, I was, my parents were like, I thought you were going to wait, you know, I thought you weren't just going to give it to anyone. And I was like, I didn't just give it to anyone, mm. you know, um, and and that allowed myself to open it up. And then I just realized I don't even know what I want in a relationship physically or emotionally or spiritually. So I let myself go there. But man, purity culture just had its uh, grip on me for sure. Even I'm two, almost three years into marriage and, and sometimes even still in those moments, I'm like, ooh, we're being naughty. And I'm like, no, we're being not. We're just being married, you know? But those are still things that I have to like undo um, and, and talk myself out of and allow myself, my embodiment has been allowing myself to also realize I'm a sexual person That's o and that's okay, you know? But those are things I'm still having to tell myself is okay to be, which is totally. so strange. Yeah. But that makes so much sense when you have 27 years of repression that's guiding your <laughs> sense of self and what is right. And then you have authority figures in your life who are like, uh -huh. well, I thought you weren't going to give it up. And that's like kissing a person. Like, you know, right. it's like even the like lowest common denominator yeah. of affection in this way gets considered a thing that is about mm -hmm. your character. Like, even as I hear you describe that, yes. it's like what you choose to or to not do is about who you are as a person, yes. not an exploration of who you might be underneath all right. of the repressive ideologies that come with purity culture and Christianity right. in general, that often right. tells many of us that, well, your soul and your spirit are the only thing that matters, but your body is the thing that's going to send you to hell. <laughs> and so it feels like that kind of context is really challenging to engage with at all. Yes. And how much of that was a part of our idea? identity, especially as, um, you know, as female identifying people, it was put on us as an identity trait, not just a thing to decide or, you know, or something or decision to make. It was who you were. And mm -hmm. I took that very seriously. I was 
the virgin. I was the righteous one. You know, like I was, and it was Ariel Astoria, you know, I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. And it was a part of who I was. So undoing that in itself, I mean, the digging, the extracting that needed to come from that was excruciating. I mean, very, very painful because I had to take this part of myself and and identify it, but it wasn't, it wasn't who I was. It was just something that was like a part of me, but it wasn't who I was and, and still undoing and learning that. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because I think a large part of Christian purity culture is about being defined by the experiences you haven't had or the Mm -hmm. experiences that you have had, not actually your own sense of self and becoming in the midst of those experiences. And so Mm -hmm. it's, if you, kiss someone or have sex suddenly you're a hoe but mm-hmm. you don't and then you're like well that's in my heart like I got the heart of a hoe and you're like well I don't know what that even mean or like you're defined as virginal and it's like well I have yes. a virginal heart now because of right. this like, physical connection to a spiritual reality yeah yeah and so this mm-hmm. idea of ignorance or innocence or purity is all connected mm. to what you do with your body in this particular way whether what is happening is problematic or not good or not safe or not consensual or not those definitions get connected to our soul in a particular way that i think encourages the suppression of self and the lack of knowing ourselves that i want us to talk a little bit about and so i would love if you could describe for us what is self-suppression what does it look like what kind of tools are used to cause us to suppress ourselves Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I, well, I feel like what we've been talking about just in itself is just this con these constant reminders and conditionings um, that we can't be our whole self. If our sexuality is part of that whole self, um, you know, like if if there's these different parts of our identity and aspects of who we were that we had to hide, um, that we had to ignore, that we had to, um, you know, that we experienced shame or guilt around. um, I think those aspects is what lead us to self-suppression. And then when we get there, it's this... um, like I say, when I met my spouse, that something in me felt like I could actually breathe, like something in me felt I could actually exhale. And that's where I realized how much of myself was actually suppressed and how much of myself was actually not awakened yet because I, was, I wasn't given spaces or permission in order to have those things awaken, in order to exhale those things out. Um, and so that was obviously extremely off-putting. You know, when I, uh, there's a quote by Lala Dahlia, uh, she says, um, she's an author and, and, and healer and spiritual, just just a mom of just inspiration and goodness. And um, she says, the wrong relationships put you to sleep, but the right relationships wake you up. And I think when we think about suppression, it's where can we find that we have finally woken up? Um, Mm -hmm. Where can we find that we have been numbing and um, hiding these aspects of who we are and who we've always been, but we're never given full permission and full space to be and express those things, Um, which I think is why the important, the work of embodiment is such a big thing. It's like how, for me, my suppression showed up and I didn't know how to be here. I didn't know how to be here in my physical body because I wasn't a physical body. I was a spirit, I was a soul, I was Mm -hmm. everything but a body. So I spent almost 30 years not knowing how to be in or have a body really and so so much of my work of undoing that suppression was to go to Zumba class was to start taking yoga was going on hikes and doing things that allow myself to tap back in and so I think yeah the I think the the hardest part of of suppression especially for um for women for fems is that we can't trust our, our ourselves we can't trust our body and that is the greatest lie we've ever been told and that we've wholeheartedly believed and now we're undoing what that means and what that looks like and so i think suppression is overall spaces where we can't be our full and whole self there's pieces of ourselves that are um that are sleep, you know, there are pieces totally. of ourselves that are, are weighed down with shame and guilt and, and getting to the work of being able to tap back into those things and to wake those yes. parts of us up. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and I think some of what I'm hearing and what you're saying feels really consistent with my experience of evangelicalism because in evangelicalism, mm-hmm. 
there's this panic that if you get to know yourself, the thing that you're going to get to know is sin and debauchery. Yes. And when I'm hearing you describe how you unlearn self-suppression, even in the context of purity culture, you're not like, I went out and had a lot of sex, which whatever, <laughs> if that's what you do, that's what you do. But yeah. you're like, I went on hikes and I did Zumba and I did yoga mm -hmm. because the level of separation from body and self and self-knowing is yeah. so deep that it doesn't have to be yeah. a sexual thing that brings us back into our bodies. Most of the time, for most of us, it actually isn't. It is right. the basic things where we can say, I can trust myself, I can yeah. have authority over my own body and my own life and not abdicate that yeah. to leaders who seem to think that they know my body and my life better than I do and then somehow call right. that God. Right. And so it's had me thinking a lot about the tools mm. of purity culture and how purity culture is basically this perfect kind of potion to <laughs> lull us or to kind of spellbind mm. us into a certain reality or life together. And yeah. some of the things that it's made me think about is like how heavily reliant purity culture is on authority structures. Mm -hmm. How in purity culture, there is always the archetype of, it's almost always a white man and his white wife who mm -hmm. were sweethearts <laughs> and they, you know, to your story earlier, didn't kiss until they were at the altar. And uh -huh. now they have this like amazing life together and sex life. And you're like, you all don't yeah. actually seem that happy, but that's like the kind of that story, that mythology, and it, I think it is yeah. a myth, that kind of mythos, mm. is what gives their story authority to mm. present over other people, to preside over other people. And yeah. so what I've noticed a lot, especially as a person who like dual enrolled at a Bible college or a Christian school, yeah. was that people would search out an archetypal type of relationship that mm -hmm. wasn't fitting for them because they'd only been taught to hear the, the voice of authority figures in their lives, not their own yeah. voice. Yeah, yeah. I think I I talk about this a lot um, in in my book because for me, breaking breaking that um, that um, yeah breaking or or leading into that unfolding space that was the first thing I needed to do was is this me or is this an authority figure speaking is this me or um is this you know my pastor or a mentor is this God or and and so those those voices were very blurred I'm like is God telling me you know that I shouldn't be having sex right now or that I shouldn't be enjoying this? Or is that shame and voices of the authority that have poured that into me, that have conditioned that into me? And so that was my first breaking was, is this God's voice or is this someone else's? And I need to shut out all the voices in order for me to figure out what that is. And then to listen to, okay, that's me in there. Okay, great. And this voice, and I, I posted this earlier this week about just like the voices that were calling me to shame, um, to guilt, to less than myself, that was not the voice of God. And I needed to hear so much of that in order to practice that discernment, you know, and, and that learning. Um, but yeah, the authority aspect um, is always in the narrative because there's this constant reminder that we can't trust ourselves. So we need this person who, like I had Diane Butler, uh, Diana Butler Bass talks about the elevator aspect of spirituality. You know, mm -hmm. I need this person to go in the elevator, talk to God, bring that back down, regurgitate it back to me versus this very linear, God is right next to me. God is speaking to me also. I'm in this also. There is no elevator. Vader. And so, um, but that's really hard to do. That, that's still something that I'm like, is this me? Can I trust? And can I trust this if it is me? I still have a hard time doing that. And, I, and I'm learning and trying to practice and therapy, you know, all of those things that I can't do in order to figure out like, no, I can trust myself. There is this knowing here. There is this discerning here that is connected to the divine. And I'm allowed to trust that part of myself. Um, and, and it doesn't mean we negate authority. It doesn't mean we like don't have people who we think can pour into and can speak over us. But I do think we get to choose that we have a lot more autonomy in choosing and who mm -hmm. that is. And it's not just anyone with a penis. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you're pointing to a very specific narrative that lies at the center of purity culture, which is that it's this message that we're given that if people are exploring their sinning, if people are mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. loving themselves fully, if people are listening to themselves, if they're finding their voice, then they're drifting yeah. away from the gospel somehow. And, and yeah. I, you and I have talked about this in other contexts, but even mm -hmm. this the notion that you have to hate yourself to receive the gospel because it means hating uh -huh. your sin enough to love God. Yes. And that kind of narrative 
permeates so much of how purity culture works, which says I am wholly untrustworthy. And so mm -hmm. any orientation toward myself, any orientation no toward knowing what I want, knowing what I like, knowing what who I love yeah. and who I like and how I want to form my intimacies gets yeah. caught up in this, oh, if I'm exploring this, I'm drifting farther from this more of him, less of right. me, he is greater <laughs> than I, rather than asking the question, how does the fullness of who I am intersect with the fullness of who creator is in my life right now. Yeah. And that those questions actually allow us to have a far deeper spirituality and a space to actually know for right. ourselves what's helpful and what's not. And, right. and so I think I've found myself concerned very regularly lately when people, when, when we start to give these narratives of, hey, I want you to know that you are loved fully as you are right now. And people are like, mm -hmm. except for your sin. And I'm like, okay, right. no one is saying don't grow. <laughs> no one is saying don't have mentors or leaders in your life. But I hear this right. like evangelical voice that's just like, well, if you become yourself, you're going to be the fucking worst. And so it's right. just a yes. strange <laughs> dynamic and narrative that I've heard a lot that embeds itself in purity culture in really particular ways. Yeah. Why is the main ingredient to all of it this, this what we're not calling self-hatred? Like, we don't call it that. We call it dying to self. We call mm. it, you know, separating ourselves from our flesh. We call it all these different things. But what we're really saying is self-hatred. I have to hate myself. I have to hold this animosity towards my body, towards my physical flesh, towards how I feel and what I think in order to mm -hmm. love a creator, love the divine. Those ingredients what is it like the math ain't mathin like you yeah. cannot <laughs> totally put in all this hatred and expect that the result and that the outcome is any kind of love for anyone you know like what is it like uh and in um and repulse where it's like how's how the hell are you gonna love your how like how the hell are you gonna love yourself if you if love anybody else if you don't love yourself i think the same thing goes with god we're talking about we love god we love god and we're so wretched <laughs> you know like that cannot be in the same breath it cannot be in the same breath and so really going back to like me saying i love myself is not saying i'm a god you know like i'm i am the <laughs> the divinity i don't think that's what that means and if some people believe that sure but that's not what i'm saying when i say that i am saying i love myself and that there is a bridge in a through line and a connection to mm -hmm. me being able to love god at the same time yes and I think if we can understand love of God in those terms of knowing ourself in relationship to God and expressing mm -hmm. that love that we experience in and of ourselves, that yeah. it serves as a really healthy counter narrative to mm -hmm. what I think we've all been given in purity culture, which is if you control something enough, it will go away yeah. and then you'll get rewarded for controlling yourself. And mm. that's one of the narratives that I heard around sex is like, if you wait, if you wait, if you wait, if you yeah. set yourself up in these certain ways and like make yourself look this certain Christian girly way, yeah. then you're going to get rewarded for that later. But many yeah. of us don't feel like we experience the reward of that kind of self-suppression. We actually just end up learning to control and push down every question that we have, every right. doubt that we have, every right. uncertainty we have about the validity of our leaders, many of which were abusive. And so yeah. I can think, I'm like thinking about how, like when I was in a youth group, we had a youth pastor who had an affair with a, well, I, he's not even in the right language. Like yeah, he, he had, he had a criminal sexual relationship with a wow. minor. And wow. I think there were things in me that were like, oh, there's something about this seems weird when I was like 14. <laughs> but because he was the man of God, there was no yeah. space to question that because what that came up as is I'm trying right. to, like, I interpret that as like, I'm trying to limit the mission of God by coming yeah. up against the man of God. And so a yeah. lot of our ability to discern safety, health, yeah. goodness yeah. is completely blocked because we're taught that suppression is actually self-control. And then we're like, well, the fruit of the spirit is right. self-control. And those are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And when we say, when we say control, control means there's some, there's negative aspects to it, right? You're, 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 uh, there's like this vigil I have of like when we're controlling something, we're suppressing its its fullness. You know, when we're trying to keep it in this very narrow, very, I am going to put it here and this is going to be just as orderly and just as controlled, right? And then there's this aspect of control that's orderly, um, you know, that's, um, you know, like um, 
um, consistent. It's it, There's a flow to it. So there's these mm-hmm. different layers of even control. But I think what we're talking about here, when we say control, we're saying suppress. We're mm-hmm. saying numb. We're saying hide. We're saying, I'm going to keep it in this space, even though I'm literally bubbling over. But I'm going to ignore. I'm going to ignore. I'm going to ignore. I'm going to suppress. I'm going to suppress. I'm going to suppress. Because that's what we were taught that we needed to do. And then when we get in those spaces, like I, in full transparency, had a pastor who literally asked me, you know, like when I first met you, you were a virgin. Is that still the case now? Oh my God. And I remember erupting in that moment because I felt that shame, right? Here is this man of God showing me that my mission of God is deterred because I am now tapped into my sexuality um, Mm -hmm. in my God near 30s, you know, like that's its own, (laughs) that's its own thing. But I shut down and I, and I cried and I, and I, you know, repented and I had all these things because this is the authority figure. This Mm -hmm. is the pastor. This is the guidance. When honestly, I had mentors later who was like, it was not okay that he asked you that, that he mm-hmm. opened up that space. And I mm-hmm. didn't, that wasn't what I was taught with, you know, I was taught that's your pastor. You go tell them X, Y, and Z because that's the accountability. But like, we are allowed to have, you know, say over who it is is keeping us accountable, not just because they hold this role or this name on an office, you yes. know? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's part of purity culture is that people give each other authority and then say you have authority over people. There's all these different types of authority and power that we can engage with, like given authority, taken authority, positional authority. Mm -hmm. But because Christian leaders, myself included when I was doing campus ministry, are taught that we have authority over the people we're leading, the only option that you really have is actions that lead to control. And so then we start to use these manipulative sentiments like confession and accountability, and Mm -hmm. people then become confessing and accountable to me and not to God or themselves. And I'm like, what would it mean to understand confession and accountability as distancing oneself away from yourself and your relationship to Mm -hmm. the divine that can only be found in that kind of quiet space of your body and who you are and who you're becoming. But -hmm. I think that because so many leaders are taught to use fear as a tool within purity culture, to use hell, to use the threat of a bad relationship later, to use the threat. Yeah. I, you know, I think there was a lot of like a homophobic stuff that was used to like mm-hmm. talk about why you shouldn't be having uh-huh. sex in any way. So there's like all kinds of messages. And the result is that the people who do not have power in that situation. So I think a lot of like youth group kids in my case or college students. Yeah were taught that guilt and shame was an appropriate response to anything having to do with your body that didn't feel like it was missional unto Christ. And so we then learned Mm -hmm. to store up guilt and shame as a knee-jerk response to anything. And so when we start to have any kind of physical intimacy with folks, when we start to ask questions, guilt and shame rise up and we mistake that for Mm -hmm. being the voice of God or like the Holy Spirit somehow. And I think that kind of untangling is one of the major parts of self-suppression that is really really challenging for folks yeah i mean that that's so much of what i wrote in my book about in the eclipsing space so i i break up this undoing this unfolding into five phases first it's an awakening we realize these parts of us are alive now and and what do we do how how do we get through this or what do we do with them um and then the eclipsing is this 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 grief space of like i'm not supposed to be feeling this i that guilt reminders of this is not who i'm meant to be Mm -hmm. or who god is calling me to be and it's in that eclipsing space i mean like i would be driving and have full-on panic attacks thinking Mm -hmm. about like oh is this where i'm supposed to be is this who i'm supposed to be is this freedom that i'm feeling in my body and in my expression with god is this allowed or am i in sin or am i just you know backsliding and it feels good so of course i'm feeling free like all these different narratives that i had to be like nope 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 and i just had to see it and feel it and experience it and then you you do that enough to you you get to the to the outside of it or the other side of it and you're just like oh they made that seem so scary like they made that this feel so 
bad and it and it's not and I and then you're angry right you go through some grief things because you realize how deep the conditioning was and how um how deep the shame and how deep that self-suppression really is and now you realize oh I got a lot of work to do Mm -hmm. you know because I'm with a loving partner who sees all of me and yet I still hide a lot of myself with him because I feel like I have to, you know, because I feel like Mm -hmm. how do you just turn this off? And we talked, you know, you talked about it a little bit where it was like, okay, that mythical aspect of like, you save, you save, you save, then you get with your person, you turn it on and there's disco balls and all the lights and you know what to do (laughs) and how, how to touch and where to go. And we don't know shit. Like we don't know anything. And so it's like, you expected me to turn, this off for so long and now I just turn it on and I'm magically the most perfect wife and person in bed that I need to be like that is bizarre and so I found myself feeling like man I wish I would have gotten here a little sooner you know like I wish I would have been a little bit more free with myself and so just being gentle because it is it is um it does induce anger, you know, it does, Mm -hmm. it does create this space where we're like really sad for the past selves of us who felt like they had to exist as less of them. And that's, uh, it's just hard and it's, and it's sad and it, it induces grief and that's okay to kind of sit in that, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's really challenging for many folks who are in that space of grief or wishing things, who would, wishing that things would have been different for them. Mm Mm-hmm. It feels like in that space, oftentimes, we also don't do the work of getting to know ourselves. We're just like, well, here's what I didn't have. So now I'm going to go do whatever I couldn't do before. And then that doesn't feel very good either. And we still don't have the appropriate tools to explore or to engage with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so we end up going from a conservative existential crisis to a progressive existential crisis because we're still not listening to that inner part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, here's what feels good for me. Or here's what I think Mm -hmm. I can do and what I can't do and what my boundaries are and are not. Or when I set a boundary for myself and then I change my mind, that I'm Mm -hmm. not a bad person who needs to have an existential faith crisis because mm-hmm. I changed my mind. And because right. I think that oftentimes, well, I, I don't know. In my experience with myself and with other people, the existential crises that you're describing tend to override our ability to know basic things about our bodies. Yes. Where we go so quickly to like, does God hate me? Am I living in sin? Was that the worst thing yeah. I've ever done? Am I completely yeah. broken or irreparable that yeah. we can't just go, did I like that? Did mm-hmm. that feel good? Was yes. that healthy? Did I feel right. honored and cons- like, did I get to give consent? Yeah. Was yes. I enthusiastic? Was I nervous? Was I scared? What can I learn? But instead we're like, yeah. does God hate me? <laughs> like, those <laughs> existential questions get in the way yeah. of, of the deeper just knowing that happens alongside basics. creator if we just ask basic questions. And because yeah. Christians are not asked to ask or not invited to ask basic questions mm-hmm. in a lot of our formation because it's a sign of doubt or uncertainty or straying from being who God would want you to be. It feels like there are these eternal consequences to just asking, did I like that or did I not? Yeah. Yeah. I was having a conversation with, um, with a friend and, and she just was, she was dating someone and obviously it doesn't look like how she thought it was going to look or how her parents wanted to look. And, um, she was like, I I feel guilty. Like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, and I said, do you feel loved? Do you feel like you have been seen as the fullness of who you are? Are you heard? Do you feel like you are a child of God when you are with this person? That's your answer. Like, Mm -hmm. and we know the answer. We know what it is we're actually telling ourselves. But like you said, those questions of just like, am I, is this it? Like, and then you go down the spiral, like we're like, I guess this is it. This is how I'm going down. (laughs) I guess I'm just going to keep going down this way. But I think that's, those are the wrong questions. Like you said, it's just like, do you feel loved? Does this invite you to freedom? Do you feel like you're opening a door to a conversation of expanding and undoing mm-hmm. the tension and in the in the trauma that you've endured and walking into this sense of wholeness and freedom? Yeah. That's where you want to that's where you want to be going. And if your answer yes. is yes to those things, then keep putting yourselves in the space to tap into wholeness and freedom and ask yourself be intuitive along the way you know Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah 
I think it's really hard for many folks to to pursue any kind of freedom sure. or wholeness. The word use wholeness sticks out mm-hmm. to me because I remember how I was taught to teach students about what happened when they had sex, which was that you formed yep. a soul tie, which for those of you who are not familiar with soul ties, it's like this extra biblical idea that when you have penetrative sex, because queer folks don't even get to be in the conversation <laughs> on this, it's like hetero penetrative sex, <laughs> that there is a connection that your soul binds to another person. It's a mistaking of language around marriage, like leaving and cleaving and all this stuff, uh-huh. which we don't really have time to go into. But <laughs> go, go ahead and read the Weird Ass Gospel Coalition article that just came out and you'll get a whole weird oh, theology no. of that because that was a wackadoodle situation. But there's this <laughs> idea that when you have sex with somebody, you bind your soul to them. And so if you you separate from that person you lose like a part of yourself or your soul basically gets mm. fractured because you've separated a thing that only god should be able to that yeah. god has put together therefore shouldn't be separated and so yeah. when we think about our relational life our sexual lives in terms of soul ties then we're trying to pursue right. wholeness as sexual beings it becomes incredibly challenging because we assume that we have some of us have theologies deep in us mm-hmm. that any kind of sexual activity that we have is ripping apart our soul somehow. And therefore oh. we are less redeemable. We need to do mm. penance for what we have mm. or have not done. And that kind of spiritual chaos doesn't yeah. lead anywhere but shame, guilt, and more repression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also, like, I think there is a part of it, you know, being a few years into being married and that being a part of um how I learn you know my partner how I learn being with myself how I like there's just so much more to it than than we were given um and 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 I do feel deeply connected to him but that's not just because of our of our intimacy that's just because of the way we talk on our walks mm-hmm. that's the way we wake wake up and we're just like in bed on and we're like doing our wordle and we're like there's so much else that adds to that 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 soul tying and that connecting um but then other than just like you said that very penetrative oh there it is you're yoked your souls are officially connected and you can't do anything about it you know i think there's again there's a lot more choice in this. We have a lot more choice in this than we've been made to believe, you know? And and so I think remembering, like, I get to choose whether I'm deeply connecting with this person or not. Mm-hmm. And I get to choose whether I'm not. And that can that goes into a whole different conversation. But um, again, it comes down to autonomy. It comes down to boundary. It comes down to choice. And we have much more say in all of this than we've been raised in top to believe that we do. Yeah, and that notion of autonomy and choice feels rough in the context of purity culture because purity culture relies sure. on a single narrative of what it means to be holy or to be saved. Or to, you know, the, the phrase that I heard uh-huh. like growing up was oh. work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that was applied oh. like everything in your Oof. life. And mm. so first you you stay pure and you court and you date. And then mm-hmm. you get married and your life actually begins. <laughs> and then you express your your like love for God and for the mission of the world by having kids. And then you control those kids and mm. all of their friends to do the same thing <laughs> that you did. And so a lot of us actually never felt like we had a lot of choice in how we set up our relational yeah. lives. It Like if we're queer, if we yeah. don't sit in kind of these normal Christian spaces, if we want to marry someone who's not a Christian, you know, like there's yeah. all kinds of situations that fall outside of those evangelical checkpoints that make us feel like any choice that we make is going to be wrong, is going to be harmful, is going to have some kind of cosmic effect on the world. And I think that a lot of my work around purity culture and purity culture with other people has been, your decisions are not of a cosmic significance in the way that you've been taught they are. And like, what you do is not going to make or break God's plan to save the world or to love people or to be close to people. And if you do stuff that's fucked up, then you can repent. You can do the work of turning around, right. of learning right. to do conflict well, of apologizing right. like a grown person instead of just <laughs> sitting in like in a pool of sadness because you did something. And so I yeah. think that the notion of choice and exploration feels like a really mm. important space for many of us who have never gotten to explore to lean into. But I know that these conservative checkpoints often get yeah. in the way because the lives that we might imagine for ourselves when we listen to ourselves don't look like yeah. Pastor Brian's stuff. Right, right. Which I mean, for me, a lot of it, a lot of my unfolding was was marrying my husband who, who wasn't actively in a church at the time He wasn't posting scriptures on everything he there was no Bible verse in his bio. And that was 
um, kind of a red flag for a lot of people. So then I started being like, oh, shoot, is this my person? Am I, am I choosing wrong? When I knew fully and wholeheartedly that this was my human, this was my person for this time. And so, but I, I was being convinced that I wasn't, you know, and that I couldn't trust that. And, and the decision that I was making was that cosmic cause of you are hindering the fullness of God's love by you deciding to marry this person. And that is a, what a weight, what a weight, um, that really, and then I just realized I don't have, I honestly don't have that much power. I honestly don't. I honestly don't have that much power. Mm -hmm. And I can make this decision for myself that adds and enhances beauty and love and fullness to my life and brings me closer to God. Like there was just this extremes that we were, you know, we're given. And it's like, well, what if I choose this? And it's not as extreme as they think it is. Then what? You know, like then what do we do with that? That empty space of not knowing. Yeah. It's such a weird dynamic, too, because when many of us start to explore or make decisions for themselves, for ourselves, we're like, oh, my God, should I be feeling terrible about this? Should I like hit the panic <laughs> button that's in the middle of the room right now? Like, I don't feel bad, but like, should I feel bad? And like, does uh, me not feeling bad mean that I've suppressed yes. the Holy Spirit's work in my life yes. and I can no longer hear the voice of God? And then we try to like repent of yeah. all this stuff that we don't need to be repenting of so that we can hear the voice of God again yeah. when maybe the voice that we're hearing is the panic that's been put mm-hmm. into the room by people in our lives who do not get a say mm-hmm. in our intimacies. And so mm-hmm. I've seen that happen to a lot of folks where they're like, well, should I feel yeah. bad about this? Like, I need to feel bad about this. <laughs> and I'm sort of like, well, I mean, if you don't, and it's problematic if or criminal, then maybe don't. we talk about that. <laughs> but if it's not problematic or criminal or harming another person or harming right. you, then I think you can just not hit the panic button yeah. in the middle of the room and assume that that's doing God a favor or somehow saving yeah. the world in a way that it truly is not. You kissed a boy at a party. Like, you know, I just like, and that's that's about it, you know, and that, and that's, and that's it. And, and letting it be, you know, like what I forget where it is. um, I think it's in most black liberation theology, but call a thing a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. you kiss someone at a party. That's, that's it. You know, like you didn't, the world didn't start spinning in a different opposite direction. Like other things did not come from this. You just brought up some things and what is it in you that that is experiencing and that and and then you just go in, you know, like, again, like we said earlier, did I enjoy that? Well, was it good? You know, would I do it again? You know, and just like having those questions and opening that space up for ourselves, I think is important and knowing that we can trust how we respond and how we when how we engage with ourselves again. And, and that's just work. That's just continuous. It all comes yes. down to just being able to trust ourselves and being able to hear and listen um and and know that we can um lean into that and trust in it you know and i i think of the verse a lot of um lean not on your own understanding um and and really what that actually could mean you know and really what that actually could look like um and it doesn't mean that you don't have it in order to lean on something you have to kind of already be pressing into it a little bit, you know, um, but maybe it's not to just give our full weight, but there's a little inch of it that's still in that understanding of who we are and who we know ourselves to be. And like, I think we just need to lean, not lean. There's another word and I, and I, my body's doing it more than my words yeah. are doing it. But I think there's a way we can we can kind of press in and understand ourselves. We can press in and trust ourselves um, in, a, in a way that we haven't been allotted to be able to do that before. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that use of that scripture because I think many of us were given it in conjunction with uh, Matthew Narrow Road, where it's like, lean out on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge yes. him and you'll make your path straight. He'll make your straight. path straight. And so mm-hmm. you have this image of a singular way of being with God. Yeah. And so if you lean at all, it's like you're falling off the cross bridge that's going to take you <laughs> between the chasm where God is on the other side of. And so there's just so many weird ways that that kind of engaging with our own understanding is so interesting because in that scripture, there's this invitation to acknowledge God in all of our ways, good or bad, yeah. and then to allow the presence of God in partnership with who we are to yeah. direct us and guide us. And I think that directing and guiding isn't to some missional end. It's to ourselves right. and to this kind of what I would call a holy and sacred life with other people where we yeah. are 
fully knowing ourselves, fully known mm-hmm. and fully knowing others in whatever way we would want to do that. And right. it feels challenging because I think that because Christianity is often told in terms of a single conversion experience, like you you make the right decision one time and now you're bound to this particular life instead of this wandering journey where you discover who you are along the way, which is more consistent with the story of Israel, right. the story of Jesus, right. that you you end up in these wilderness spaces outside of what the what religious things you have known. And in that mm. exploration, you make a lot of mistakes. You encounter God, you encounter yourself, you encounter the community. Yeah. And that space in and of itself is what transforms and shapes us rather than some kind of abstracted existential view of God that is relying on you mm-hmm. to be the very best by not being yourself. Mm. Yeah, I, I I have no response to that. I'm just, I'm sitting with that. And also just that the wilderness is not a bad place, you know, mm. or a place that you can't go and that you can't be and that God isn't still there. Um mm. I think I had one of my last international trips uh, was was to Israel uh, before before COVID in that trip in itself is its own conversation <laughs> separately. Um, but one of the things we did was go to the places where they've tried to mark out, you know, where Jesus might have gone. And even where the wilderness was, was like not actually as far out from things as it as, it, as it's been made to be. Um, and so maybe that wilderness space is just our need to just get out and get away into here and to lean in and that God is still in it. The wilderness is not negate of God. Um, if we believe that God is everywhere and in all things, mm-hmm. then of course God's in the wilderness, you know? And so allowing the wilderness to be a place we go to connect, um, you know, to, to meditate, to pray, to be, is I think if we rephrase where that is and what that space could be, um, I think we'd go there more often, honestly. <laughs> I do too. But I think that many of us are too afraid to go there because yeah. if we are to go to spaces of quiet, the things that we're quieting can seem like they're going to lead us into places we don't want to go. And I don't think that's true. Like I hear many yeah. people who are in this deconstruction, decolonization journey being like, I just mm-hmm. can't read the Bible or pray right now. And so when we quiet the mm-hmm. voice of the Bible, we assume that there's going to be some kind of significant consequence instead of recognizing yeah. that maybe quieting that interpretive voice in our lives allows us to form questions that we can take back to that later or that as we stop praying for a little while that we hear ourselves enough to know why prayer causes us so much anxiety and Mm -hmm. so again i feel so weird that this conversation about about repression is always put into (laughs) sexual space because we're just so ill-equipped to hear ourselves in general and then are expected to in this place that we've been taught is so cosmically significant yeah it's just kind of wild And one of the Mm -hmm. things I love about your work and about what you do with the book is that you lean really heavily into art and what I would call even the mystic space, Mm -hmm. that in-between space, maybe even that wilderness space, to invite people toward what you call unfolding or exploration or even just a journey Mm -hmm. back towards self. Can you talk to me a little bit about how art has helped you unlearn self-repression? Because I know that's a part of how you seem to express yourself in that that work. Yeah, I've... when people are like, oh, when did you start writing or, or when when did you start being creative? I've I've always been. It is just the thing I knew how to do and where to go um, for my own healing, for my own interpreting of God, for my own, you know, whatever it may be for years and years and years. And so um, for me, that was always a space that I knew I could go to hear and experience God and to be what I believe to be a vessel, a through line of being able to share and put that out in the world. And so, but also at the same time, it was like, but only in artistry that looked a certain way, only in artistry within this bubble, within this space. So, so I made sure I stayed there until I couldn't anymore because I was being invited to these other spiritual spaces where they were doing yoga and meditating and all these other stuff. And it was like, oh, maybe the line is actually a lot thinner or even non-existent mm-hmm. than I've yeah. been taught to believe because I feel like I'm teetering, you know, and I had a mentor who like I, I said, like, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm like doing these things and living 
in a way that makes it seem like I'm up here experiencing what's happening to this b- person that's living and being. And she said, you know, like when in the verse, you know, on earth as it is in heaven is actually on. And she like pressed her, her, her middle finger, her index finger and her thumb together. And she flipped it upside down. Like there actually isn't so much of a line like we are Mm. constantly in and out of the spiritual and non-spiritual spaces and and art like anything art an open mic a concert like rather it was considered secular and i'm putting quotations on that because i don't know if i believe that that is actually a a separating phrase anymore Mm -hmm. you know but in that space where it was considered secular i didn't find these quote unquote secular spaces to be not of God. And that confused me. You know, I'm like, they said God wasn't here, but like, I don't know how to not feel God here. And so art for me has always been that thin space, um, that connecting space of, of, of divine things and divine happenings, um, within this way of communing. And I think, I think there's still a part of me that believes, you know, I don't, all all the aspects and the technicalities of creation, I don't know. But the story of creation as an artist is one I find that I connect very deeply to. Mm-hmm. You know, if I am a black woman made in the image of God and an artist, there's something about that that does something to my spirit and that does something to my soul. Um, and I find myself in the story as an artist. I found myself a part of this mm-hmm. as an artist and so I think being able to write a lot of the poems you know in the book I need that was me just trying to make sense of things that was me just trying to hear myself mm-hmm. that was me just trying to like desperately reach out to God and being like can you am I where I need to be is this mm-hmm. as damning or as evil as I'm being told? Am I as far from you as people are saying I am when I don't feel that way? And so that's where all of those poems came from. They were just, they were just me. They were just me trying to make sense of things. And then it was like, yeah, okay, sure. Put it in a book, you know, and hope that they help other people. But like, I needed to spill that way. I needed to extract in that way. um, Because my art has been the, the place I, I do that the most and where I feel like I time and time again can always meet creator um, mm-hmm. in that space. Yeah. I hear in that some level of just presence too, like presence with yeah. yourself and your own being yeah. and how you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling and that yeah. your presence with yourself right where you are is a space where creator meets you in a substantial mm-hmm. way. And I think it's mm-hmm. actually what James Baldwin would uh, describe as one of the issues with white Christian. Well, I think he's talking about white Americans in general, but he has, he says yeah. that uh, white Americans need to regain sensuality. And then he describes mm. sensuality as uh, to respect and rejoice in the force of life, of life itself Ooh. and to be present in all that one does from the effort of loving to, to the breaking of bread. And so Ooh. Baldwin understands that whiteness takes presence Mm -hmm. and subjugates it to the intellect to Mm. something that is esoteric and far away and ethereal and conceptual rather than fully embodied and so i hear Mm. in your description of presence with self and learning to trust yourself through presence this type of sensuality that is a hyper presence in moments that matter and not just ones Mm -hmm. that matter because they're spiritual but that matter because they are because they exist because they're happening in and to our bodies and so i think for many of us who are reclaiming our theology and our bodies from purity culture there is a need to return to the present and to the sensual and not just the sexual Mm -hmm. but the sensual and you know there's lots of people would define um like i think about how different people define the erotic but Mm. a space where we are fully in our bodies and therefore mm. learning and trusting because i think mm. if we can't it's again it's sort of a, a play off of the rupaul stuff but like if you can't trust yourself how can you trust others and so right. i hear you i've heard you describing your partner and your yeah. therapist and your mentor mm-hmm. a lot and i think for many of us part of the issue with purity culture is it teaches us to inherently distrust other people because we've been yeah. traumatized by authority figures or been taught right. that other people are evil and so i'm wondering right. if you have any advice for folks who are in the start of that kind of trust journey both learning to trust themselves and learning mm. to trust others yeah is there any advice that you would give folks as they're building those trust relationships um yeah i think both both are um 
our habits and the only way that we really create habits is by doing them often, uh, which is a lot of risk, you know, and it might be scary and things might not be not might not work out. You know, you might be like, I I really I'm going to I'm going to trust myself on this one, you know, and it and it may not work out, you know, and that that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have trust in yourself, you know, or vice versa, other people. And so I think just the practice of it. For me, um, I had to sift, you know, this is an authority figure who means well, who's well-intended and who is trying to love me in the best possible way, but there's just too much fear in their voice. Mm -hmm. So I need to separate that out. And this, I have been able to guide and lead myself up until this point, you know, with orchestration, with also divinely being guided, I felt. Um, But at the same time, there was still a trusting of myself in that process. You know, like Mm -hmm. when we think of being discerning um there's still a level of us having to decide that that was discernment you know so there is there was these sneaky ways that we were trusting ourselves we just weren't calling it that Mm -hmm. now i think we just need to start calling it that you know and, and and acknowledging it and and same for trusting other people i think the people i've learned to trust in this setting are people who are still challenging me you know, and challenge me in a sense of expanding and, and having full thought and growing. But also overall within that challenge, there's still an acceptance mm-hmm. and a love for where I am and for who I am. Yeah. And there's not, I always say, you know, seek to understand, not seek to change um, and seek mm. to change or fix, you know, like, and that doesn't mean we can't grow. That doesn't mean we can't take in, you know, constructive criticism. I think there's there's that level of constructive um, versus just criticism. <laughs> like right. yeah. constructing means that we can then take that and build something off of it. If we, we have to be able to trust people who we can build off of and who allow us to continue to build off of who we are and who we are becoming. And so um, I think there's a knowing. I was telling a friend earlier, she was like, I want to be able to open up to more people, but like I can't. And I'm like, do you want to? You know, like, do you do you actually want to? If so, then you got to like start that practice of opening up to people Mm -hmm. then, you know, but asking yourself, I, I might be withdrawing. I might be, you know, mistrusting because I'm hurt. Yeah. But also because there might be something in me that's telling me that this person may not be able to accept me fully Mm -hmm. and wholeheartedly and that, and it's okay to listen to that. But honestly, I think finding a therapist, finding someone who you can just kind of just like spill a bunch of stuff to every week and be able to get a little bit of a soundboard, but mostly the soundboard is just being able to hear yourself back to you, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, what a lot of times a good therapist does. And so um, be gentle with yourself in the process. Um, Be be gentle with the process in itself, um, Mm -hmm. I think is a a very important thing. And and find a one, if you can find a one person Mm -hmm. who you feel like, okay, I feel so safe here. I feel so at home here. I feel like all of me can exist and exist fully. Find that one person. And then you start to know what that really looks like and what that really feels like when you meet others. Totally. And I think for folks that don't have that, one practice that's been really helpful for me has been journaling. Uh, I think journaling can seem like very basic. But oftentimes I'll just set, if I don't know what I think about something, I'll set a timer for five minutes and then just free write without editing. And then read back what I wrote and then ask myself what surprised Mm. me, what felt consistent with what I already knew and actually start to ask Mm. myself questions in a way that doesn't have to all exist in my head because I know that if it just rattles around in my brain, it's not (laughs) going to go anywhere. And so I found that journaling has been a really good practice for me in figuring out what Mm. I want in my relational life, in my sexual life, in my spiritual life, in in all parts of my life, in my friendships and all of those things because I can give myself space to hear myself and yes. to edit when I'm reading back to myself like oh actually I don't even know if I agree with what I just said on there and, and so <laughs> yeah. I think there's some ways that we can mm. do discernment work with our own voices in that practice of journaling and so yeah. I'd offer that as as a resource to folks but I would also offer your book as a resource particularly mm. particularly the poetry because I think that there's a way yeah. I suck with poetry frankly I really do and um <laughs> I'm not an abstract thinker. I'm not like a images into words picture. I'm like very much a person who lives in my brain. But I love yeah. that in your poetry, there's an invitation to, I can I can read invitation in a lot of your poetry. Mm. And so I would love for you, if you could plug the book, let people know where they can yeah. find it when that's coming out. And we'll make sure that yeah. we have people knowing about this beautiful resource you put together. 
Yeah, it's called The Unfolding, um, and you can find it wherever books, audiobooks, and e- um, I think ebooks are sold. Um, and so the audiobook obviously is my voice. So if you've listened to this old podcast and you're like, I like how she talks, then feel free to get the audiobook. Um, the physical book does have some visual elements to mm-hmm. it that I don't read out loud. So I, I just, I love having an aesthetic moment. I love having all senses um, be titillated, if you will. Um, and so the the visual book has also some reflection questions at the end. And I do read them in the audio book because I do want it to be about your story. Yes, these poems are from my experiences and what I've endured, but I put the reflection questions because I don't think it needs to stop there. And I don't think it should stop there. I think as an artist, if I'm not challenging and inviting you to explore yourself and explore what's happening within you, then I feel like there's just, um, the, I'm not doing my, the fullness of my job in that moment. So um, you can find it um, on, on my website if you want to find specific links. If you want to support Black-owned, you can find it through Reparations Club. And also um, go into your local bookstore. See if you can find it a physical version in person um, while also supporting um, some small businesses out there as well. And if your bookstore doesn't have it, you should ask them why not and that they should. Um, and um, yeah, but you can find those um, on Amazon and all those Barnes & Noble's online as well, the generic places. <laughs> Well, that's excellent. We'll do some giveaways of the book and I'll put some of those links in our show notes today. Sweet. But I just wanted to say thank you so much, not just thank for you. this time today together, but for the labor that you've put into what you just described as an invitation, an invitation mm. into your work such that people would have a mirror to themselves and to their own life yeah. and an invitation to be more themselves. And it really is a beautiful gift. And so I'm so grateful thank both you. for your time and for what the work that you've already done. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I love a chat with you. Anytime. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. I'm really, really grateful for y'all for getting to do this work, and I hope that in doing this work that we would do a little bit better together. See y'all in a couple weeks for our episode on privacy with Elizabeth Mora. It's going to be a doozy. All right, see y'all then.